Hi friends, and welcome to the first official episode of Adaptable, a podcast about books and their movie counterparts, and where we ask the age-old question, is the movie really better? I'm your host Hannah, and for the next little bit, we will be talking about the book All the Bright Places by Jennifer Neven and its Netflix adaptation. And for the first week, I am joined by a special guest, my partner, Jonathan. What's up guys, Jonathan here. Just a little bit of a trigger warning before we get started. This book deals with depression and suicide, so if that is something that upsets you, you may want to skip this week and join us for our second episode next Monday. Also, just a bit of a note, we may give away some spoilers, so keep that in mind before you listen to the episode. I'm so excited to be filming my first podcast, and I'm so glad to have Jonathan here with me. How are you doing today? I'm doing very well. This is also my first podcast, so I hope we can both learn together how to do this. (laughs) Yeah, it's a little bit awkward for the first one, but hopefully um, as we get into our first few episodes, it'll get a little bit more cash, casual. Casual indeed. (laughs) Before we actually get into the podcast, I want to explain a little bit about how it's going to work just so you guys can get introduced and sort of get an idea of how things will go. Essentially, what I want to happen is we're going to be talking about a book, a new book each week that also has a movie counterpart. We will read the book and watch the movie. I'll try to have a guest on sometimes. Sometimes it'll just be myself. But the way that the podcast will work is we'll open up with talking about the summary or the narrative arc of the book that we have been reading. And then we'll get into some more specific details about the author, about the story structure, about how the story was received. And then we'll transition over into the movie where we will talk about the director, the casts, and some of the differences between the book and the movie. And then to sum up at the end, we will ask the question, which is better, the book or the movie? And that is how each week will go. So without further ado, let's hop into this week, um, All the Bright Places by Jennifer Neven. With this book, we are introduced to two main characters, Theodore Finch and Violet Markey, and we meet them on top of the bell tower, and they essentially are going to commit suicide. They're planning on committing suicide, but they decide to come off of the bell tower and sort of there have been a gathering of other students at the bottom and so pretty much the whole entire school knows what's going on but Theodore Finch and Violet are total opposites of one another. Violet is more of the popular girl dating the football star Romer and Theodore is the outside wallflower figure, sort of these atypical characters that you see in any YA novel today. They sort of are brought together by this event happening to them, and they also coincidentally have the same history class, and the history teacher gives them this assignment that they are to explore their small town of Indiana 
and find extraordinary things in their ordinary town before they graduate and move on. And of course, Violet and Theodore are partners for this project. And while they are partnered up for this activity, this assignment, we learn more about their backgrounds, why they ended up on the bell tower on that fateful day. And we learn more about their relationship as it blossoms and grows throughout the novel. And that is essentially what the book is about. And if two teenagers falling in love and one of them or both of them having some sort of illness sounds familiar to you, that's because it is. Um, Let's see, how many books have a similar summary? Uh, You could probably rattle off a few of them. But here we are with another one. Some facts about Jennifer, Miss Neven herself. She was born in Charlotte, North Carolina, which is a place that's pretty close to my heart as it is only about 20 minutes away from where I am here in North Carolina. Also, it's where Jonathan is from. Well, where do you live, Jonathan? You live... Well, I was... Um, I lived in Charlotte because I came from New Jersey originally. Um, so my family, you know, my dad, he moved down here to uh, Charlotte to uh, go for some work. And I just came down here five years ago. And a few years or a few months later, I met you. So, um, yeah, I was from Charlotte over there. So it's kind of cool to see that this author is from uh, the area where I've where I'm currently living. So, yeah. Yeah, well... She was just born in Charlotte, North Carolina, but she grew up in Indiana. Oh, just like the setting of the book. Yeah. Another pretty famous YA, well, I say pretty famous, very famous uh, YA author, John Green, is from Indianapolis, Indiana, and I believe Kurt Vonnegut is from Indianapolis, Indiana, too. He, I wouldn't categorize him as a YA author, definitely science fiction, but nonetheless, apparently Indiana turns out a lot of famous authors, so. Do you mind if I ask what's a YA, just for those who don't know? Oh, that might be good to address, because I don't think I've actually said it, but for those of you who might not know what YA is, YA is young adult, a young adult novel, so that is Usually the main characters are between about 13 and 20. So usually high school, early college. Yeah, once you get in the 20s, most people would categorize that as adult fiction. But YA is more like teens. And so for those of you who don't know, just to clarify. But yeah, so back to Jennifer. (laughs) She grew up in Indiana and she started writing fiction around the year 2000. But she sort of had a writing career before then. She wrote historical nonfiction, which I found pretty interesting. But she has a number of novels. So she has her Velvet Jean series, The Aqua Diaries, which I thought was interesting. It was a veiled autobiography of her high school years. And then she had her historical nonfiction as well. But she also worked as a journalist for a newspaper and she was an associate producer for ABC News. So it does make sense that she would have some historical nonfiction because it, it seems like it would go with her career as a journalist. 
but her most successful novel was All of the Bright Places, which was incidentally her first young adult novel as well. And that was published in 2015. And if you are familiar with her work and like it or have read it, she's actually coming out with a, another book in September. So that's just a month away and it's called Breathless. So uh, be on the lookout for that. If you like this book or like other books by her, you may like this book that's coming out soon. Yeah, so that's a little bit about the author, Jennifer. And so going into how the book was received when it was published the reception was really good it was on the new york times bestseller list and i see that a lot like this book is on the new york times bestseller list or that book is on the new york times bestseller list yeah it makes me think that every book nowadays is a new york times bestseller i see them so often yeah so i wondered to myself like what exactly did that entail like what does it mean to have a new york times bestseller jonathan i actually want you to guess how many books do you think you have to sell in one week to be on the new york times bestseller mm, my joking yet slightly real answer is a hundred thousand but my realistic answer would probably be around a couple thousand, maybe under 10. Yeah, so your second one was definitely closer. <laughs> um, so to achieve bestseller status on the New York Times, you have to meet two criteria. So the first criteria is to sell five between 5,000 and 10,000 copies in one week. Mm -hmm. And then the second criteria is to have those sales be diverse sales. So what that means is you can't have like all 5,000 or all 10,000 books come from a pre-existing list of followers through a personal website or from one marketplace like Barnes & Noble. So you have to sell them some on like Amazon or some through personal bookstores and some through Barnes & Noble. So it has to be across different bookstores. So like, you're saying like... You have to get five to 10,000 new people to buy your book in various locations. Every week. Every week. Yeah, so if, you're, if, you're, if your book is on the New York Times bestseller list for 100 weeks, that means like each week your book is selling between five and 10,000 copies and it's diverse. Whoa, that's a lot of numbers. Yes, so um, New York Times bestseller status is not easy to get. So it so, you know, if you see it on a book, it actually does mean something. And this is from selfpublishing.com. That's where I got this information from. If you want to go check that website out to make sure it's legit, uh, do your own research on your own time. That's just where I got mine from. So uh, other things that this book has accomplished, it won the Goodreads Choice Award in 2015 um, for Best Young Adult Novel. And the New York Times reviewed this book too and it said, Violet and Finch are archetypical offerings in contemporary young adult fiction, a pair of damaged, heart-tugging teenagers who are at once outcast and isolated, trapped by the dissonant alchemy of their combined fates. Um, and it went on to compare it to Eleanor and Park by Rainbow Rowell and The Fault in Our Stars by John Green. So I would definitely agree with that statement and I would definitely agree with the books that they compared to it very archetypical characters uh, very much like uh, you know Eleanor and Park, Fault in Our Stars, Five Feet Apart, all of those type of books. 
And yeah, I mean, the book is 378 pages. And as far as reading, it reads pretty easy. There's nothing overly hard about this book to read. It's from first person perspective and it changes perspectives each chapter. So you get a chapter from Violet's point of view, you get a chapter from Theodore's point of view, and it sort of just goes, hops back and forth throughout the book. So there's nothing too difficult about this. Yeah, I mean, it's young adults, so it's aimed for middle high schoolers to read. So I would give it that sort of grade level, maybe like a eighth or ninth grade reading level. So if you want to jump into this book, I would say go ahead. I liked it good enough, especially if you're into the young adult genre and sort of if you like The Fault in Our Stars, you'll definitely like All the Bright Places. So let's pause for a short ad break and we will come back and Jonathan will talk a little bit more about the movie. Welcome back, and now we're going to talk about the movie. Now, Jonathan didn't read the book. Nah, I didn't read the book. But I roped him into watching the movie with me, so first we're going to talk about how we liked the movie in general, and then we'll talk a little bit about the director and the cast and stuff like that, but I'm sure that'll come up like while we're talking about the movie, so... What did you think about it? Um, at first, when you told me to watch it, I was kind of hesitant. I was like, this could be another movie that's kind of the same as every other movie. I felt like there was a lot of movies that were kind of similar. Not in the sake of people having mental trauma, but I felt like people, two people, especially in high school, you know, going through something, some struggles in their life, and they kind of come together, you know, kind of similar to The Fall in Our Stars or Starstruck, Disney Starstruck. It's such an old movie. I don't know. But um, movies like that, um, I would say in some way also High School Musical was kind of like that too. Um, I know they didn't have High School Musical? Yeah. Wait. Like, you know, like the two stars, they were like going through um some like rivals and stuff like that and then they kind of like grew together um i can i mean i i guess i can see what you're saying i i definitely think it's more of like this recent ya trend that it's like really i feel like john green started it but it's where it's like two characters come together and one of them's like ill and like gonna die I mean, in this case, it's very much mental illness. Mm-hmm. I don't even remember what movie it was, but it was like, it was like a girl and she couldn't go out into the sun. She was like allergic to the sun. That was the first movie that came out. And then there was a movie that come out literally like two weeks later and had Bella Thorne in it. Mm. And she was allergic to the sun as well. Mm. I don't remember. And (laughs) I just remember those movies coming out, like, right beside one another. Hold on. Let's pause for a second. Like, let me look those up. Hold on. Wait. All right. So, I looked it up. It's Midnight Sun and Everything, Everything. Those two movies, it was where the the girls were, like, allergic to the sun. And just, like, this, the same type of movie. That, I got those same vibes. It was definitely a little different. It's almost, like, seems formulaic. 
like a formula to like a number one YA novel is to like do these steps. I felt like a lot of movies, you know, actually I took a, a literature class, I think in college, and they told me that a lot of stories that you see nowadays, even books, novels, and movies, they're all kind of formulated, like the base of the movies itself or the base of the stories, they're all formulated the same way. And a good example that uh, I learned was about like heroes, for example. Um, they, you know, there was usually in these stories that there was someone who didn't have any power to kind of do what he wanted or to help others. And he kind of met some kind of old mentor to kind of uh, show him the ropes and teach him the ways and how to become a proper hero. And you can see that in a lot of, in a lot of movies back then and now, like similar to like, you know, Hercules. Um, I would say Superman in a sense, you know, because like, they, yeah, I understand their parents wasn't really, you know, superheroes, but they kind of grew, grew Superman up to be, you know, a respectable person and kind of appreciate things. And he just had the superpowers in itself. And there's just a lot of other stories, you know, you can see nowadays, there's just like some old mentor that, you know, guide the hero throughout their journey and kind of provide them the mental clarity to become uh, successful as they are in the end. Um, so I feel like a lot of books like that, they're very similar. I mean, obviously each book has their own twist. And I feel like, you know, Jennifer Neven's book is compared similarly to um, The Fall on Our Stars. I feel like that story in itself is very unique in a sense. Like there's some kind of unique a twist to it or some kind of like person personality that's different from the other characters in the stories so that's why i i mean i think they're you know both stories are good yeah so your argument is basically that there's a precedent for books having a formula the hero's journey is definitely something that is formulaic georgia lucas has used it for Star Wars. He said that the hero's journey is something that very much inspired him. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I thought the movie was okay, but I think we'll get into our formative assessment sort of at the end and compare it to the book. A little bit about how other people thought it was besides us is Rotten Tomatoes. Uh, I like, I mean, I like using Rotten Tomatoes. Uh, generally, before I go to the movies, I'll look up the movie that I'm going to see on Rotten Tomatoes. So I thought, why not do that for this movie? And it got, and I mean, what would you say 66 is? An okay score. It's a barely passing, but passing. It's like a D. I mean, if you're going by, you know, grading in the school system, 65 is like a D, I think. So, yeah. So, I mean, you're barely passing. Yeah, I mean, it it got a 66%, and that is the critics rating. There's a specific review that I kind of connected with. This person said, it doesn't negate what comes before it, a film that lingers briefly in the deep end but remains disappointingly shallow. And I think that, like the reason he said that is because if you just watch the movie it does seem it seems like it wants to deal with a lot of serious topics and a lot of serious issues and it does but you don't get the depth that you do from a first person point of view the movie is obviously from third person it uses third person omnipresent that's what usually a movie does instead of being from point of view. So, 
you don't get that inner dialogue that the characters have. You don't get that depth. You don't get what they're thinking. And that takes a lot away from the movie, in my opinion. So I think that's where he gets the lingers briefly in the deep end. I definitely feel that, especially from reading the book first. It was filmed pretty recently, though. It was filmed, well, it was probably filmed last year, excuse me. It premiered on Netflix this January, and it has Ellie Fanning playing Violet and Justin Smith playing Theodore, and the director was Brett Haley. He has directed some other movies, so this isn't his first or anything. I haven't watched any of the other movies he's directed. A few of them include Hearts Beat Loud and The Hero. Maybe if you're into any of those movies, you'll like All of the Bright Places. So, yeah, I mean, I think where it fell short for me personally was the characterization too. Violet, she lost her sister, Eleanor, and she's supposed to be sort of this depressed figure throughout the movie, but she's also supposed to be the really popular girl. And I feel like the way that she like dresses and the way that she carries herself really isn't like that great. And I don't think it's Ellie Fanning's fault. Like I think she acted good in the movie. I just don't think that they made her necessarily look like the way I thought in my head, which obviously the movie isn't going to live up to exactly what's in your head, but I just expected the you know, the quote-unquote atypical popular girl to look a little bit different. They kind of made her up to look sort of like a nerd almost. Like they had her in these oversized sweaters and these big like round glasses and her hair was kind of messed up. She definitely looked more of like a nerd or like a typical bookworm, I would say, rather than a popular girl. Hey, why can't a nerd be a popular girl? Well... You get to be famous and smart. Well, like, her physical characteristics in the book were just more adept than I think they translated into the movie. Okay. So, there's that. Um, Yeah, I mean, I I guess it's according on, like, how you see an adaptation as well. I mean, like, physically in the book they describe her one way. And in the movie, she was a different way. Um, Regardless of just that, there's like a number of differences in the the book and the movie, which I think is what we'll get into next. Um, I mean, it's expected to have a lot of differences between the book and the movie. I mean, have you had any adaptations or have you like read any books and watched any movies that were like spot on that you can think of? No, there's usually... Because the thing is, when you're trying to formulate an idea through words and then have those ideas be formulated the same way in a film, usually in films, they can't... Like you said, like it was filmed third person, like most movies usually are, and if the book is first person where it has a person's inner thoughts, chances are it's not easy for the director or the camera crew to kind of show what the inner thoughts are through um environment that the person surrounded in. I know there's some movies that are they, they do a really good job at. Can't currently think of any, but I can definitely I've definitely, you know, those books are usually or movies are usually have good reviews. But um it's usually not easy. So chances are the books or the adaptations of the books are te- typically different, you know? 
Yeah. I mean, one thing that I was a little anxious about beginning this podcast in the first place was that because a lot of books are first person and translating it to third person isn't always the best. And so I kind of went into this podcast thinking like, oh, well, in that case, I'll just like the books like in the first place, especially since I tend to lean towards that opinion anyway. I am a literature major. I love to read. But I think one of my goals with this podcast is to really be able to differentiate when a director or writer takes the movie and does a more artistic interpretation rather than just taking the book and trying to translate it into a movie to make like a quick buck because some exec at Warner Brothers or wherever was like, hey, like this will make us some money. Let's turn this book into a movie. So teenagers who are too lazy to read the book will just go watch the movie. So one of my goals with this podcast is to try and really differentiate that and look into a really true artistic interpretation. And in this case, I think the movie was the latter, like in this specific situation. I think it was just taking the book and translating it into a movie. Um, It's kind of hard to ask you that question because you didn't read the book. But yeah, for me, I think it was more of the latter. I still think it was good regardless, so it doesn't really matter to me. I mean, I liked it. It was okay, but just in, in terms of like a good adaptation Mm -hmm. and like what my definition is of a good adaptation I would say that it fails at being a good adaptation but that doesn't necessarily make it a bad movie yeah yeah I mean and also just a lot of the differences that were present in the book and the movie I just feel like went more in depth and not even from the individual perspective for instance when they opened the book they're at the bell tower and the kids at school are below watching Theodore and Violet on the bell tower and in the movie we get them standing on a bridge and no one at the school knows about it but then in the movie it proceeds to act like the kids at school do know about the suicide attempt at least from Theodore so that kind of confused me also in the book We understand that Theodore has a lot of these mental illness problems from his father and we get actual interactions with Theodore and his father in the book versus in the movie. It's just briefly mentioned so I feel like that goes a little bit deeper as well and I appreciated the book going into detail about that. And one of the things that was not in the movie that I really wanted to see and was kind of disappointed by and this is sort of like little but I was still disappointed by it one of the places they go for their assignment in history class is this place where there's all these mobile homes and campers and they're filled with different kinds of books because one way that Theodore and Violet get to know each other is they sort of instant message and they trade Virginia Woolf quotes and they talk about their likes uh, Violet likes writing and Theodore sort of feeds into that and so one of the places they go is the this sort of eclectic book store and so I kind of was sad that that wasn't in there but oh well I mean you'll win some you'll lose some but at the end of the day that wasn't in the, the movie either yeah I mean I would give it if we're rating it on a five-star scale 
as an adaptation, I would probably give it a one, honestly. I know that's pretty harsh, but I would give it a one. As a movie that stands alone by itself, I would maybe give it a two and a half. Out of what? Five. Two and a half out of five? So that's like a four, four and a half-ish, I guess. No, two and a half out of five is 50, so I can't even count. Oops. Um, I'd probably give it like a 6.5. like similar Out of to, 5? No, out of 10. Sorry. I but, was counting out of 10. But out of 5, it'd be a 3, I guess. Um, I think it was really good. Um, the only reason why is because I don't have the uh, the knowledge of it being an adaptation like you do. So I was just, you know, purely watching it like every individual who hasn't read the book. And for a movie itself... I usually, you know, don't really get emotional, but that book has captivated me emotionally many times. I think I almost cried four times and I had to stop myself. Um, and usually when a, a movie um, gets to that point that I start feeling like, you know, very teary-eyed or very emotional and I get very captivated by the by the characters, I personally think it's a good movie. So I would probably give it like a three, three and a half out of five. And if it's out of 10, like a 6.5 you know, seven-ish. I don't know. I, I rate it pretty high. All right. Well, I think that about wraps everything up for today. Thank you so much for tuning into our first ever episode. I hope you enjoyed it. And thank you, Jonathan, for joining me. Yeah, it was my pleasure. I had a great time. I'll come back for sure. Yeah. I have to admit, I was a little bit anxious and nervous to do a podcast just because you hear so many great ones on the internet like 99% Invisible or Revisionist History and it is a little intimidating to put your foot in the water and test everything out but I'm learning every day and I'm excited. There will be a new episode every Monday from here on out so make sure you follow the pod on Spotify and Google Podcasts and everywhere else you get podcasts. Right now, we are not on Apple Podcasts quite yet. It has to go through a review process and it is taking a little while longer because of COVID and just Apple not having as many people reviewing their podcast right now. As soon as that gets up, I will let you guys know. I'm so sorry. I wanted to wait until it got on Apple, but it was just taking too long. So I was like, whatever, we're going to do it uh, with Apple or not. But I'll let you know as soon as it's up. Thank you so much for your patience. And I'm so sorry for the inconvenience. But if you would like to contact me with any questions or recommend any books, my email is adaptablepodcastbusiness at gmail.com. And next week, I will be reading and watching Breakfast at Tiffany's, written by Truman Capote, and the movie was directed by Blake Edwards. So make sure to tune in next Monday. Thank you, guys. Have a great week.